part of why you might have an insecure base one way or another is that you didn't internalize a healthy parent. You either internalize someone who was in fear or an absent parent, and so external relationships that are healthy. When you're in healthy enough relationships, you actually internalize them. So you become, you have an inner community and an external community, but you need the external community experience of warmth, care, support long enough to internalize a new support system and self-regulating system and build those pathways for self-regulating. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. Today, Hannah and I are diving into attachment with another attachment science expert, Jessica Baum. Jessica is the owner and founder of both the Be Full Method and the Relationship Institute of Palm Beach. And she's the author of the brand new book, Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. If that title pulled you in as much as it did me, make sure to check out today's show notes where she's got a link to pre-order her book coming out in June that includes a ton of pre-order offers. Together, the three of us talk about the science behind attachment, our automatic nervous systems, how our earliest experiences dictate the way that we adapt and bid for safety in our relationships, and Jessica shares why she can't stand the word codependency. Y'all, this is a really great episode. She's brilliant, and I really enjoyed this conversation with Jessica. So without further ado, meet therapist and author Jessica Baum. I am so excited to be sitting down with you, Jessica. I think just coming from our team, they were so excited to share your book with us. And also, um, just you're such an incredible referent. And we have such a deep history with you that I want to kind of get into a little bit more. But thanks for sitting down with us and being willing to talk about all things attachment today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this podcast. Yeah. Before we jump in, I think we're going to talk a lot about uh, your exciting new work that's coming out around attachment. I think we can talk a little bit about your relationship with OnSite. But before we jump in, who is Jessica? Tell us a little bit about you. Oh, God, I'm so many things. <laughs> I'm a woman and I'm a therapist and I'm a wife and a stepmother, but I have been... I will talk to what's relevant, a psychotherapist for almost, I would say, close to 15 years approaching that in private practice mm-hmm. for about... 12 years. Um, I struggled with uh, codependency, depression, and anxiety, and decided to help people. Primarily, I went back to help people with depression. Mm. But, you know, through my own work and living in South Florida, I worked through addiction issues with clients and things of that nature, and really kind of developed a practice around, around codependency and helping not just the person who's struggling with the substance, but the whole system mm. at large. And I'm a big system approach kind of therapist. So now I have a private practice with about four other therapists and we work as a team, as a system to work on more system issues. So that's kind of that been the evolution of my, that one area of my life. Yeah, that's a really unique perspective and way that you kind of approach things. Um, I would make up and what I've found from being in this space is that no one ends up in a helping profession by accident. Mm -hmm. And so I would assume your story informed that you kind of inferred that you had 
codependency and work through that. Um, what was the timeline? Did you, was therapy a part of your own healing? Um, did you pursue like becoming a therapist in the middle of your journey? Was it after and just realizing the impact? What was kind of the timeline in that? Oh God. So psychotherapy has been, yeah, it's been a huge part of my story personally and professionally. I still see a therapist and I believe all therapists should continue to do the work constantly yeah. because we're always evolving and changing. And there are not to say there are periods when I'm not doing my work, but I believe wholeheartedly in, in the more work you do with yourself, the more that um, kind of shows up in the work that you do with others and that, 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 that the two go hand in hand. They almost like feed each other in a very positive way. So mm-hmm. in my 20s, I went on site as um mm-hmm. Yeah, I always remember seeing a psychotherapist and I was like, I'm going to go to on-site a Cadillac uh, for treating codependency. So I went and it had a huge mm. impact on me. Mm. Um, and as I continued and, and then got my education, I went back for trainings with you guys. And I just believe even the trainings, you're doing your own work. Yeah. yeah. So you're always kind of doing your own work. And I believe that's such an important part of being in this field is to continue to do those deeper layers of work as they show up appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned um, codependency quite a few times now. How would you, I feel like codependency is a buzzword right now in media. um, And I feel like there's kind of a lot rolling around about it, but how would you define codependency and how does, how do you see that show up for people? I actually can't stand the word. I think it's really, (laughs) that's great. Really, really poorly coined word. And someone who struggled the way I did, thought, oh, the solution was to be super independent. And that's what Mm. our culture kind of supports. And I didn't realize that healing my adaptive ways of survival was actually something I needed to do in community and with right support. And for many years, Mm -hmm. I was left on my own thinking I just had to be more independent, which is the pendulum for codependency, not realizing that interdependency was where it was at. So The word codependency bothers me because there's a lot of shame attached to it. And there's actually, I mean, there's a huge population that's shifting and really starting to speak about adaptations and the Mm -hmm. way in which you survived in your childhood and self-sacrificing and all of that through a more compassionate lens. But I think because of the nature of how it got coined and everything, there's a lot of misinformation and energy attached to it that needs to shift. And so... You know, and part of the reason why I wrote my book was to address that population, but help them really mm-hmm. see that it's really how you adapted versus, you know, you're you're in love with an addict or you're self-sacrificing right. all the time and you got to learn how to love yourself. It's like, no, you adapted this way. And so having compassion and understanding around your developmental process helps you make sense of why you behave the way you do. So it was a big piece in this message of this book is actually changing the misconceptions around codependency mm-hmm. and the sh- taking away the shame around it. Yeah, that's such a compassionate lens. I hadn't even thought about that. So I love that you are kind of breaking the norm on that because it, you're right, it does have a lot of shame around it. And as someone who really, uh, I really identify as independent and had, especially growing up, because I, that's how I needed to survive. But that was a really praised thing as like, I can't be dependent. I have to be independent. But it really taught, it severed my relationships and really uh, Mm -hmm. broke a lot of my narratives around 
community and such. And so it's such a, it's a, such a healing and compassionate approach to really reinvite community into the healing aspect at, at onsite. We say a lot, like you're wounded in community and so you need to heal in community. And so that I love that reframe to say like, Hey, this isn't a pendulum. You aren't going from being this to being this. It's, we have to like kind of look back and assess where we were and what brought us to where we are. Absolutely. And I think healing, you can feel like it's a pendulum because finally you're like, oh, I can do things on my own. And it's like, it's like what you said, being hyper independent is so praised and it's also a defense mechanism, you know, totally. So interdependency is, is a concept that more and more people are starting to truly understand. And it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel black or white. It feels kind of nuanced. I think that's just what I was going to say is why I love what we do at Onsite with the group work, because Mm -hmm. I think people, sometimes in talk therapy, we can get, clients can get in their head of like, this is my situation that I'm working on, or even my situation I'm working on with my therapist. But, and I love the group aspect or group nature of uh, experiential work that we do at Onsite is you're healing with other people and you heal through other people. I always find that that is such a surprising thing for people when they come here that they don't realize that that part is going to help them heal. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, as a psychotherapist, and if you hold calming space, you know, the implicit and the the experiences that come up are what's supposed to come up. But when you're in a container with people holding that space, Mm -hmm. there's such a powerful way for even more to get cut, you know, more to bring up. And I've, when I was at onsite, at one point, I remember someone recalling a very traumatic event that she had blocked out of her memory. Uh, most of her life. And because she was in such a safe place with the right support, her her brain, her psyche was able to release the, these in deeper, you know, memories to be held and re-experienced and integrate. So it's amazing what you can do in the right environments and in, in the right relationships. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And I think so much of um, my understanding of attachment, and even in within my own story, I love putting it in the context of how did I bid for connection? How did I find connection and how did I find safety? But I think where I've had trouble is as we heal attachment and from my understanding of my own story of like, if it's all about community, if I was wounded in community, if I, if attachment is about my relationship style with other people, it has to involve Like I have to start taking risk. I can't just deal with it on my own. And so reading your book, you use the quote, I'm just going to quote you because I thought it was so good. Rather than something that needs to be changed overnight, the real strength lies in learning to understand and work with the unique needs of our attachment style while we are healing so that we can focus on relationships that allow us to thrive exactly as we are. Because I think there's there's that relationship piece. And so I was wondering if you can speak to the work that we have to do alone and the work that can only be done in community. So I'm glad that you brought that up. So I don't know, we can do work alone, but the work you can do with your psychotherapist or in relationships. So part of why uh, you might have an insecure base one way or another is that you didn't internalize a healthy parent. You either internalize someone who was in fear or an absent Mm. parent. And so What I refer to is that when you're in relationship, external relationships that are healthy, when you're in healthy enough relationships, you actually internalize them. Mm. 
So you mm. become, you have an inner community and an external community, but you need the external community experience of warmth, care, support long enough to internalize a new support system and self-regulating system and build pathways for self-regulating. So it's an internal community that you build that ego strength, but you can't create that without the experience of that on the outside. And if you didn't get you know, a calm, nurturing parent, because your parent was struggling for whatever reason, you need a calm, nurturing, supportive person or many. And you need to learn to regulate and co-regulate with them. And it's through that co-regulation that you start to develop self-regulation. If you're anxiously attached, you might not have self-soothing or a lot of self-regulating abilities because your parent was also in survival mode when they were raising you. So now if you reach out to the right people and the right community, it's through those experiences that get internalized that you now develop an an inner community or inner resources, so to speak. So you're reparenting Mm. a younger part of you by internalizing healthier relationships. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Beautiful. I love that. Um, For those who are listening and are like, whoa, this is all really new to me. Can you take a step back and kind of set the stage for attachment styles? Like, what are we talking about here? What is attachment? How do we develop it? Is it something I have forever? Does it change? Can you set kind of set the stage for that? Yeah. And I guess that, you know, like what I'm also speaking on is like the felt sense. So, you know, when you're younger, you know, we're born without um, a parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest. And your hippocampus is not fully developed, which stores a lot of memory. So you're born as a sensing being that um, is storing memory through sensations and you're born as one energetic unit with your primary Mm. caregiver who is a stand-in for your parasympathetic nervous system. So through Mm. co-regulation and getting your needs met, you learn to trust the person meeting your needs. You, You learn to cry a little and they're tuning to you or they're seeing you and you learn that like when I reach out for my needs, they're gonna get met and there's a inherent sense of trust that lays down the foundational blueprint for how you your lens of the world. And if your parent or parents were struggling, because we can take in both of our primary caregivers, there can be an inherent distrust. And, you know, you can form a more anxious or ambivalent, as they would call it, attachment style, if your needs are met sometimes, but not all the time. And so you learn that there's a lot of inconsistency and you might take in a lot of the anxiety or the fear that, and, and this is how you show up in romantic relationships where I, I'm getting what I want, but I don't know if that will continue or I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. But there's a hypervigilance around your amygdala because you're primed for abandonment. You're primed to not always know that there's a consistency. And so there's also another attachment style where it's a little more avoidant, where you learn a little more self-regulating. You don't learn to co-regulate as as easily. So you become a little bit more independent. So it's also because you didn't get your needs met. You just kind of went in the other direction. For, and there's a couple of reasons, which if you want me to get into, I can get into those reasons. And then they have a, another type that's, you know, it's a combination of both. But And, and the labels are are great, but they're really embedded patterns. And when you break down, and you know, I talk a lot about this in the book, it's really about understanding your nervous system and the nervous system of your partner, because 
you know, with anxious and avoidant, they tend to attract each other and get into a little bit more turbulent relationships. But if you understand the nervous system and work through what comes up for you, I believe those relationships can provide a lot of healing. And I think when we can truly understand both sides, we stop debating so much and arguing and projecting and we start to see what's really going on underneath and how these adaptations and patterns developed in the first place. Yeah. I love the compassionate way that you said that. I love that it continues to come back to like, it makes sense. Like, of course you did that. I think that's one of my favorite phrases and using with myself and with other people, like, of course, it's just normalizing that there are things that it makes sense. You adapted in this way to survive in your environment, to survive with a caretaker who couldn't meet your needs or all of that. I love how you laid out in the book, the anxious and avoidant like kind of dance. Um, and you did it in a really beautiful way in sharing your own story. But why is it common that people who are anxious attached may um, find themselves in a relationship with someone who is avoidantly attached? So many layers to that. And, um, <laughs> Not a simple yeah. answer. Uh, yeah, there's there's so many ways to answer that and all of the ways are correct. I think I share a little bit in the book is that uh, an avoidant person appears very calm and independent on the external mm. and very stoic and not that expressive at times. And um, an anxious person is, is very expressive and, and vulnerable yeah. and well, kind of thinks they're vulnerable, but yes, more vulnerable and can get closer. And so one is seeing, one is wanting stability and independence and seeing a trait that feels like they're calm, even though they're not mm. calm, always on the inside. And the other is seeing a vulnerable, lot of liveliness, free energy moving. And so they're seeing some of the lost parts of themselves and they're seeing the part that maybe they're intrigued by and they want more of, you know, so uh, an anxious person wants to feel more independent and they, they want to feel more stable. And, and I would imagine an avoidant person loves the liveliness and the vulnerability at first um, that the anxious person provides. So, you know, your two people are kind of attracted to the unmet parts of themselves in a lot of ways. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then another thing, there can be a familiarity in terms of your attachment style. Like if you grew up in a home and you identify as someone who is more anxious, you could have had an avoidant parent and there could be something unconsciously, and I'm an imago therapist, so there's something that's unconsciously pulling you in and there's some work to do around that, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it kind of sucks when you remain unconscious about it. It can be very mm. painful. But in the yeah. right, in the right, with the right support, it actually can be a flashlight in. So that can happen. And also, you know, we meet people, I believe, that are at the depth in which we are. And I think mm -hmm. if you do some of the work and if you meet someone who's really secure and available, it might freak you out. If you grew up in a home full of chaos or you're not really available yourself. And listen, we're all at different phases. There's like these are layers and there's no judgment here. But if someone is really available and you're like, I really want to be with someone who's secure and available and they show up, you could perceive them as boring. Um, right. You could run in the other direction and you might not know why, but there's a fear of intimacy mm. on both ends. And so, and there's into me, I see. So there's so many layers as to why people are attracted. And then I also think there are some soul connections there. I'm a very spiritual person, you know, I, yeah. I think, you know, I think about my marriage and I'm like, yeah, he was supposed to be in my life. So sometimes there's that element too. And I think we can't disregard 
all of these things that come into play and there's no way to really pinpoint because it's so many layers. I love that you talked about the importance of doing your own work because I think there's so much beauty in that of like, if I am doing my own work, then I'm going to attract someone who's also doing their own work or, you know, that just that connection. You said that you are an imago therapist. What does that mean? So imago therapy is... Um, it like took me two extra years and it's had a big impact on me, but Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, I think that's his wife's name. It's structured in a experiential setting and it's, it, it's really the therapist is walking the couple through the, a dialogue, many different dialogues, but the, it's cool because the couple is in the relation and the therapist is on the outside helping um, hmm. kind of guide deeper dialogue and kind of what's underneath and attaching it to um, childhood wounds. So you're in this like really cool place where you're doing your work on your childhood with what's coming up in the present with your partner there. So there's a lot of empathy building and now like hmm. deeper layers of understanding why this person doesn't take the garbage out or forgot about date night and what it's hitting on both sides. And so it's a type of therapy that I got trained in and I'm certified in and pretty much everybody on my team is trained in because I think it's a really, really phenomenal approach when it comes to working with couples. Mm. It sounds very vulnerable. It sounds very scary. Yeah. It sounds really You know, it's powerful. interesting is someone more avoidant would str- struggles a little bit more with it, but um, yeah. um, EFT is a little bit easier if the therapist is good enough, there's a way to slow that down and make it safer. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I get that. And EFT is kind of like a mago, but there's a therapist a little bit more as a buffer in between. But and EFT I, I, stands for what? Sorry. Oh, emotionally focused couples counseling by Sue Johnson. I have her book, Hold Me Tight, right behind me. She's her her work is also um and you know, a lot of these um they're all based around attachment theory, but they're more yeah. experiential in nature. And that's really what I like. I don't like it when a couple comes in and the therapist sits them down and he just talks to both of them and doesn't get them in relation. And right. there's no experiential piece. So I, I'm a big believer in having the extra tools when you're working with couples, mm-hmm. having this background. Yeah, I love that. That sounds really um, kind of puts you into the story instead of just talking about around things you are going back into something and accessing something which is what we love to do at onsite too which is really why where the magic happens yeah hey friend if this conversation about attachment science is resonating with you and bringing to light some of the ways your earliest framework for relationships might not be serving you so well i want to tell you about onsite's healthy love and relationships program as humans we're all wired for connection But unfortunately, many of us did not get our most basic emotional needs met in our earliest development. And when we don't get our emotional needs met, we start to look to other relationships to fill those needs, resulting in harmful and hurtful relationship patterns that we repeat over and over. At Onsite, we say we repeat what we don't repair. So if we don't find that space to explore what's behind the unhealthy patterns, we'll continually find ourselves in them again and again. Honestly, I don't know anyone who wouldn't benefit from this program. We're all in relationships of all kinds, and we want them to be the healthiest they can be. Health starts with us. But this program might be especially right for you if you find yourself in those cyclical, destructive patterns again and again. Or if you're the type of person who dives headfirst into relationships, even to your own detriment. Or maybe you're that guarded, self-protective person that you don't want to be in your most important relationships. 
The Healthy Love and Relationships Program provides you the tools you need to work through whatever issues are getting in the way of you and your relationships, and it will help you create a healthy self-care plan to move forward. If you want to learn more or connect with our admissions team, you can email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com or give us a call at 800-341-7432. I was wondering if you could speak to, I'm curious around, um, with attachment styles, it's obviously things we learn and adapt to. You, You mentioned with being a baby and adapting to things very young from our caregivers. If I am avoidant, attached, leaning, is that something I am for life? Obviously, we're all moving towards secure attachment. That's what we're working towards. Do we jump in and out of different styles with different people? Do we have one kind of primary um, attachment style? Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's a really great question. We can embed more than one, but usually we have a dominant one and attachment is a two-way street. So your attachment patterns are going to play out differently depending on who you attach to. Mm-hmm. And so if you attach to someone who's more anxious, your patterns will be heightened. If you attach to someone who's more secure, there might be an easier way for you to work through um, your patterns. But your patterns are your patterns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they are not going to change. They are just more, there are easier relationships to navigate through them than others. And I think, you know, we can embed both parents. And that's why I I am so careful. Someone who is anxious can have avoidant protectors. And Mm. someone who's avoidant can act anxious at times, too. So it's, it's, it's complicated. But due to neuroplasticity, we can change at any point. This is what I'm going to say. If you're anxious or avoidant or you are insecure or you have these pathways that are there, I like to think it as, like, let's say you or at your house and you need to get to your neighbor's house and there was a lot of snow. You have one path to your neighbor's house that you've been shoveling for a really long time. And that is Mm -hmm. a well-worn path in your brain. When you start healing, you start creating a new path. Mm -hmm. Is the new path easier? No. Sometimes the default is the well-worn path, but over time and, you know, that's where building the new pathways create time and consistency and some work that the new pathways get developed. And then you you start to have dual awareness and options in the moment um, in terms Mm -hmm. of your response system. So you can develop new pathways. But I like to give that analogy because with enough stress or enough fear, you might go to your well-worn path. So anxiety still might be a protector for you because that's essentially what it is. Um, But with enough work, you start to have these other options. And over time, you start to shift to build these new um, networks in your brain or neuroplasticity increases and you definitely can change. But it's through the re-experiencing of this enough to start to say, oh, okay, now I have other pathways to choose and they might not be my default, but I'll get there. So that's the best way I can explain Mm -hmm. it because it's, again, Mm -hmm. it's not a black and white answer, but yes, you can change your attachment style and and you can work towards earned security, which is essentially what my book is telling you. And it's not a one-stop shop. It's an evolution of of the work and um, being in the right relationships, whether it's a therapist, a coach, friends, or a romantic partner to re-experience your patterns differently yeah. and to work through the sensations differently and to start to tie back the implicit, which if anybody's listening, the sensations in your body to start to tie them back to the root 
and start to mm-hmm. see that I there's a root to this and healing that that root yeah. helps you kind of build the space for awareness for right. a new path into new paths yeah. of security. I love how much you've mentioned tying back to the root of all of this or just kind of tracing back the origins because I think I'm wondering if you could speak to almost um some self-compassion or some permission giving around some of these things. I think sometimes people think like, oh, I'm anxiously attached. I feel shame about that. Or I'm avoidant or like something's wrong with me that I'm acting this way or that I am repeating these things or that this pattern is what I'm drawn to. So what could you say to encourage people just if maybe they haven't done a lot of work around this and this is, they're listening to this and it's kind of coming up for the first time or they're beginning to dabble into some of this work. What would you say to someone that maybe is recognizing some patterns in themselves to kind of extend some compassion to themselves? Yeah, and you see, this is where the adaptation helps. I think that seeing the patterns is one thing, but I think the behaviors sometimes can be like, oh, God, you know, there I go texting like a maniac again. Or, And I list a, a ton of behaviors, and, and I think we can j- all judge ourselves based on yeah. the behaviors. And there's, and myself included, there can be shame attached to the behaviors if you go into rage or you get into anger. And then I think when you do the work and you understand why your nervous system got so freaking scared or why you were so terrified, there's a shift around less focus on the external behaviors and more on the internal process or the internal experience and more understanding of, wow, my system went into, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and this is what was going on. And I was doing whatever I could to get back into connection or to get myself safe. So I think if you know that these behaviors are going on, the compassion comes through understanding why the behaviors are there, and then it starts to make sense, like um, Mm. Mackenzie said. And I think once you can start to make sense, the self-compassion increases. And when that competes, it's like a cycle around. It's not that the behaviors go away, but even in the behavior, you start to be like, oh, what's really going on here? And you start to forgive yourself and you start to see that you you just develop more self-compassion, which Mm -hmm. ironically is a mirror because then you have more compassion for other people's behaviors as well Mm -hmm. and you become less reactive to theirs. So it's a beautiful funnel that happens both internally and externally and it almost happens at the same time, which is beautiful to watch and experience too. So I think, you know, the behaviors are what our society likes to focus on, right? Like, here's the addict, or here's this, or here's that, or I'm, you know, I have shame around, you know, 15 text messages going on. And then we stop at the behaviors. We have to stop these behaviors. And it's like, no, we have to go underneath. Why did these behaviors, what was the sensations in your body that caused you to have these behaviors? And I think once you start to understand that, the, the it starts to shift into some empathy for yourself and others and really truly understanding what's going on. And that, that's a big piece for me, my own healing, but also the mm. message of the book is, is shifting. That understanding is part of the healing. It changes the narrative of, you know, why you are the way you are to a more understanding narrative. Yeah. You've mentioned the um, automatic nervous system a lot and that there are responses with, uh, that are happening within your body. And so, one, how do we start to recognize those and say, okay, this is what's happening? And then also, what are some of the things that start to heal and repair and regulate them? Because mm. it is an automatic response. What, are, like, what can we do about that? So, yeah, they are automatic response. And I, I, I explain polyvagal in my book for those yes. who are in layman's terms, which was probably the hardest part of my book. I had to get help. Yeah. I got a 
for any help. I went and looked at it. Because polyvagal is such a hard concept. We talk a lot about it at OnSite. Um, we have one of our new um, clinical directors is, like, really passionate about polyvagal. And mm-hmm. I've had so many conversations with her, but it continues to be, like, so simple but also so complicated. Yeah. Um, and we have a, we have an episode with her, Kathleen, but it's even even that. It feels like it's so expansive. So I'm kudos for how you simplify it. I, I, had, I had help from um, Bonnie. This amazing angel that came into my life, she wrote Loving with the Brain in Mind. I got, I wrote it, and I wrote it wrong. And I was like, I have to reach out to another profession. And and literally an angel. Like, because it's so hard to simplify something like that Mm -hmm. and not get it it right. Um, But so your automatic nervous system is is automatic. And um, it's fight, flight, freeze. And and what Stephen Porges, who's kind of the, the... ringleader in terms of looking at bottom up or learning how to heal trauma, he's really coined neuroception that we have inner and outer Mm. cues that send our body into flight, flight, freeze, fawn, and that our highest level of involvement is something called ventral nervous system, where eventual state where we're in, you know, real connection with each other. And not many people are in that or they can go in it and then they shift out. So noticing that if if you're having huge sensations in your body, and, and the thing is people want to attach themselves to the narrative or the core wound, you know, narrative that's going on in the here and now. But if you're having sensations that are huge and you're feeling your heart race or your heart expand, uh, I mean, you're, you're having a stress response in your body. Um, yeah. It goes through that. But I mean, everything from your vision changes, your eyesight changes, like there are so subtle changes that your body's literally saying, we have to prepare f- to fight right now. We mm-hmm. are going on the defensive and we're not open for empathy in that moment. And we're not in- compassionate in that moment because we something is cueing us that there is danger. And I would say for an anxious person, sometimes the work is to co-regulate, but the person in whom they want to co-regulate with in that moment isn't available, so they um, struggle. So the work is to then find someone else to help co-regulate with them, so they develop internal self-regulating, kind of like what we talked about. Yeah. Sometimes for an avoidant person, the work is to start to co-regulate and to let someone in in the darkest, most scariest moments because they're so used yeah. to being shut down and, and it's not safe to let anyone in. And that's very scary. So the way in which they heal are sometimes different. I think that was the question you were asking, but if you're shutting down or, you know, yeah, I talk about in the book, you know, we all know it's 80% up. So your body is sending these signals and sometimes we have no control over them. And then we make up the story. This person doesn't love me or they don't care about me or they're needy or they're t- too, they're too cold or whatever. We can follow that narrative all day long. That's just the narrative of what the sensations are, that are going on. But if you're having those black and white statements, which we are all we all have, yeah, um, yeah, it's an indicator that you're not feeling safe for whatever reason or not, and it's an indicator that there's something going on in your body worth exploring. And so I try to help people not pour my gasoline on the narrative mm. and work on breathing and stepping more into the body to cool themselves down and try to come back into connection with their partner. What happens is two people can be in that state at the same time. And then we're not, it can be more complicated, which is where couples counseling really does help, you know, sort through that. So yeah, I think noticing your, your nervous system and not needing it to be in ventral all the time we're meant to shift all day long, but 
starting to bring awareness around like, where does my narrative go? And guess what? The narrative happens at a much slower rate. So the brain is so much Mm. slower than the body. So what you're telling yourself is probably not true, but what you're feeling feels very big. And if it feels really big, it's really, really old. Mm. Mm. That's good. So what I'm hearing you say is slowing down so that my narrative can, or my, my narrative can catch up with my body. So I'm thinking incorrectly. Co-regulation, which is what, how would you define co-regulation? You've used it a lot of times in this conversation, but I think for people who don't know. Everybody knows what self-regulation is, mm-hmm. right? The ability to self-soothe. Many people don't have that ability. So sometimes yeah. it's grabbing a therapist or a friend or a non-judgmental person who's not trying to fix you, pour more gasoline on the, the thing, but just holding the space for those anxious parts of you. Mm-hmm. And being with you in the process so you we can be more with ourselves. So yeah. co-regulation is the safety of somebody else's nervous system being calm enough to help us calm down our nervous system. Mm. And we like mirror it, right? Like is that I've yeah, seen that like before. If, like if you're really, really upset and you call someone who's in a ventral state and they can be calm, warm, and supportive of you, your system will slowly calm down and in relationship to their system. Yeah. Essentially what we needed when we were an infant, but might have not gotten enough of. Right. Mm. That's so good. Oh my gosh. I I feel like this is so good for people. Hannah, do you have a question? Yeah. I'm just curious kind of what next steps are, would be for people, or maybe you take people there in your book, but like, um, if they want to start working towards, um, your, your book title, correct me on the subtitle, but the subtitle is becoming more secure in life and love. And Mm -hmm. so for those of us who want to start that journey towards becoming more secure in life and love, what would kind of be your send off for people or your commissioning around like, here's where to start. Here's some baby steps. Here's some things to get curious about with yourself. Here's some things to notice. What would you say to that? Yeah, I would say that your relationships past, present and future are flashlight in. And I think that finding the right external support, and when I mean non-judgmental, warm, not fixing support that can help also hold a mirror up and be like, so-and-so is not causing you this pain. This pain lives inside of you. Can we be with it, right? Really holding that mirror up. If you really want to do the work, it's about being in the sensations with someone who's really can hold the sensations with you. And so finding those people, it doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, but and, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes therapists can hold the space, but sometimes it's a sponsor. Or sometimes it's just someone who has the capacity to be with you when you're really, really scared. Finding the external support to start the work while the internal goes a little activated is building that community is one way through. And then I think looking at your own wounds and your own pain and your own protectors. Do I fight, flight, freeze? What is my narrative? And where does my narrative live in my body? Um, starting to connect the sensations and, and really realizing like that the sensations are probably what you felt when you were very, very small, which leads to compassion. So just a flashlight in and there's just no shame. We're all doing the best that we can and surviving and adapting and evolving and just kind of sitting in a place where you're able to say, okay, I want to start to be with more of myself. And so I need to find people who can help support that, not try to fix me, but help support my journey. And locating those people is really kind of important. 
That's great. Um, you've said a couple of times, like noticing where something is in your body. Do you have any like questions or prompts for people? Maybe that concept is foreign. I know it was for me before I started doing a lot of work, even just the basics of my therapist asks me all the time, like, where do you feel that? What does that feel like? Is it warm? Is it cold? Like what is, so is there any questions mm. people can kind of ask themselves about like, what do you mean when you say notice it in your body? Yeah. And so a lot of what I'm talking about is implicit memory, which is sensation. So it's not, sometimes it's what you feel, but it's the felt sense. So when you hear, I'm not good enough as your core wound, what is the felt sense behind that, right? Or I'm going to be abandoned or left, or when my partner shuts down, what what is the felt sense in your body? Because the, the felt sense is what connects us to the implicit it connects us to the more um the memories that are probably the hardest to deal with because they're not regular they're not what we think as regular memories so I think if you wanted to start and I have this in in chapter two of my book writing down your core wounds and I think a lot of people understand them and then I have like what are the feelings but then what is the felt sense and then where in your body could you feel that so we have three brains we have a brain in our in our belly we have a brain in our heart and we have a brain and then they're all connected Mm. and then the vagus nerve is connecting all of them so sometimes my pain is in my heart sometimes my fear is in my belly we Mm. have cross wiring that happens so noticing when these come up where where in your body start connecting to your body which can be really hard um and and connecting to the felt sense of of these narratives rather than just the story of them yeah that's really helpful and really practical because i think so often we know a lot of these things and i think attachment has made its way into our vernacular and we you know people talk about it but don't really know how to put it into practice. And so I'm really excited that you've written this book because it's really applicable. And I love the three stages that you take people through. So maybe as we're rounding out, like what is the end goal of this? You've mentioned interdependence, um, kind of finding the pendulum between independence and codependency for people who are anxiously attached. But also, can you speak to the concept of self-full that you talk about in your book? Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing I want to say is you start where you are. You start right where you are. You don't need to start in a relationship, out of relationship, there's work to be done right where you are. So that's a beautiful thing to know and very, very empowering. And I think, you know, speaking about anxiously attached or ambivalent attachment, there's a lower self-esteem and a tendency to self-sacrifice. And Mm. so people would come into my office and they would say, you know, I would say, you have to learn how to be a little more selfish, you know, and take care of yourself, which they would look at me like I had 20 heads and I was telling them to be evil because being (laughs) selfish is blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, well, think of it as self-full. Like, we need to shift the the dynamics here, and we need to see if you can slowly start to take care of yourself and face the fear around taking care of yourself. And everybody was like, oh, my God, I can do that. And I had clients coming in and being like, I was self-full this weekend. I shut the door. Mm. I took a bath. I did this for myself. I said no to something. I, you know, I slowly started to use this term as a way at first just to help people take care of themselves and and Mm -hmm. selfish didn't work. And actually I use selfish in the book too, because selfless people tend to attract selfish people, so to speak. But um, 
selfish, quote unquote, people are also in a survival state. Right. So self-full is about knowing that I can take care of my needs. I can attune to your needs. It's, it's basically the sense of interdependency that there is ability to, to have boundaries. And a lot of yeah. what I talk about, I have a chapter on boundaries is why you didn't develop bound, internal boundaries in the first place, mm. because it's not about the external all the time. But being self-full means I'm learning to navigate the connectedness of my relationship and the independent parts of me. And I can be fully me and safely try to do that more and more with the right people. And I can allow my partner to be fully them and still learn to trust them with the, you know, in these right relationships, you can start to learn how to be more selfful in the right relationships. You can set a boundary and, and there's rupture and repair and there's space for you to learn that taking care of yourself is okay and that you're not selfish if if you say no and, and working through the guilt and, and then the adaptations that got you to a place of so much self-sacrificing mm-hmm. and that that self-sacrificing is what you needed to do to survive which then goes back right. to childhood again so you know selfful is really learning the dance around taking care of your own needs and and showing up in the world and understanding that you can do both and you can take mm-hmm. care of your partner's needs and your needs and that it's not about taking care of your only your needs or only their needs, but there's space for both. And so that's where Selfful kind of started to develop. Mm, that's so beautiful. Um, we often ask on this podcast, what's one practice that keeps you centered? But I would love to hear what is one practice that helps you prioritize being selfful that you do in your own life? For me, because I have anxious attachment, surrendering every day to what I can't control and um, grief and allowing kind of what I can't control. Yeah, I think an act of surrendering every day to what I can't control helps me stay more embodied. Yeah. And it's hard practice, but, and a physical practice would be yoga, but I am surrendering in my yoga practice for those people who want something a little bit more physical, but I think it's just like about letting go more. Yeah, I think letting go helps me stay um, just more grounded in reality and more in my, my body. So good. I've loved this conversation, Jessica. I think it's been a, a so enlightening. It's, it's been really eye opening to both like the, the science, the neurology, all of it and the, every aspect of what makes us who we are, but it's also been really compassionate. I feel like I know for me, it's been just permission giving and just to be where I'm at and work towards, uh, just extending a lot of compassion and grace towards myself in the process of, um, relationships. It also gives me a lot of hope that people can have healthy relationships, people that if we weren't modeled that, or if we didn't get that in childhood, that these things, these pathways can be wired and we can create these ways to have healthy, secure relationships. And so I hope for people listening to that wherever they are in their relationships um, and with them, the relationship with themselves and with others, that they also get to extend that same compassion and that they feel maybe a, yeah, just a permission slip today to start where they're at and love themselves a little bit more today. Thank you. I appreciate that feedback. I am so grateful that you sat down with us and I'm so grateful um, that you're putting this this book out into the world. I know that it was most likely a labor of love, um, anxiously attached, becoming more secure in life and love. And I am just grateful for you using your own personal experience and then the expertise that you have honed over, you know, decades, almost two decades, like you said, of 
your own work and then the work with clients and seeing people live this out. And so we are just so grateful for your voice in the world. Um, and I can't wait for people to pick up this book. It's pre-order right now. It launches, what, June? June 14th. Yeah. Yes. And there's a lot of free giveaways. If you click on the link that I provided you guys, um, you can start immediately because I send out um, meditations and things to help with introspection and starting to get mm. into your body more. And I just want to say thank you. You guys are lovely. And I um, love this conversation and I absolutely adore Onsite. So I feel really, I was really excited about this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.